When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 10th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. MPs in Westminster are due to vote on the Brexit withdrawal agreement next Tuesday. Uh, government defeat in the Commons yesterday means that this could finally be the beginning of the end of the Brexit debate. When the deal is voted down on Tuesday, the Prime Minister Theresa May will be obliged to come back to Parliament with a plan. B, and she will have just three sitting days of Parliament to do this. If Plan A makes no sense, and if there is no Plan B as we speak, how can a credibly alternative proposal be put to MPs? And if that's not possible, what then? Let's talk about this with uh, the Minister for European Affairs and Local Fine Gael TD, Helen McEntee, who's come into us this morning. Good morning, morning Minister, Michael. and thank you for joining us. Are you concerned? Well, I, I think, as you've just mentioned, we have another amendment um, in the House of Commons. I think at this stage, people's heads are probably somewhat spinning because we had quite a lot of amendments mm. before Christmas. Um, this week, we've seen two which have passed. The first one, an amendment to their finance bill, which is the first time the government have been defeated in this sense in, in quite a time. Um, and it means that the government is essentially restricted in how it can financially plan for a no deal. So that's the first thing. The second amendment, as you've uh, suggested, if this vote is to fail on the 15th next week um, and I know the last time I spoke to you I, probably the beginning of December I was more confident I think throughout this entire process I've been optimistic and I think any time we've gotten to quite a difficult impasse we have managed to overcome it through discussion negotiation and I think that's always the way that we should be um, I'm less optimistic now um, I don't think anybody is up, as optimistic as we were before Christmas including the government and, and they've said that themselves if this doesn't pass, as you've said, the Prime Minister has three days to put forward Plan B, a second proposal. If that's not, uh, and I suppose once that's put forward, um, the Parliament then has an option to, to notice, to accept it, or you now have still the option. So Dominic Reeve has passed this amendment. Um, he had another amendment before Christmas, which essentially meant if the vote didn't pass, 
then the Commons, the Parliament themselves, had 21 days to put forward their own proposals. Um, and then the, the Speaker, the, as we would know them, the Cairn Corlier, would pick the top five or six. And that could be anything from a proposal for a second referendum, mm. a proposal for an election, um, a proposal to extend Article 50, to revoke Article 50, any of these things. Now, obviously, that's up for them to decide. So you have all of this still up in the air. Mm. We still haven't had the vote yet. Um, you know, I, I would love to see the vote pass. I think it is still uh, given the the red lines that we have, given the scenario that we find ourselves in, it is still the best option for all of us to ensure that we have an orderly Brexit. But if it does not pass, there is still a huge amount of uncertainty. And unfortunately, Mm. as an Irish government, very little that we can do in that regard, except continue to plan as we have done at home. And that may be even worse uh, because uh, the Speaker was called on to resign yesterday for being against Brexit. Well, I mean, what we've seen is division in the British Parliament from the very beginning of this. Um, and uh, I suppose people have made known their own views and their own opinions. An amendment was passed yesterday. It's not for me, I mm. suppose. I don't know in, intrinsically and in, in great detail um, what their standing orders are like in mm-hmm. comparison to our own here in Ireland and how the, their Parliament works, how amendments can be put forward. There are some who suggest yesterday the amendment shouldn't have been allowed. Mm. There are others who suggest it should have. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to comment comment on it too much. It has passed as far as I'm aware. If the vote does not pass on mm. the 15th next week, this amendment stands. The Prime Minister will mm. have three days to bring forward her yep. second... Well, the vote came two, in, 308 yeah. to 297, I think was uh, the result uh, and it has passed and that is now the obligation Absolutely. on her, but uh, I, I don't know where she's going to get a, a plan B from. You're not aware of a plan B, are you? I'm, I'm not aware. I mean, mm. what we have here is an agreement which the Prime Minister has signed off on, mm. her cabinet have signed off on, and the EU and most importantly well, the 27 other member to say states. To you, even if Mrs May comes on. up with a, a plan B and she goes back to Parliament and even if that was endorsed by the MPs, uh, well then it has to go back to Europe for approval. It has to go back to Europe, but what Europe have been very clear on the last Mm. council meeting that we had, uh, the Prime Minister obviously came seeking reassurances, Mm. I think, at the time, probably maybe not as much now, but at the time, what many of her MPs were concerned about was the fact that the withdrawal agreement, which we had all signed off on, was a legally binding document. It has to be by right. They're leaving the European Union Mm. and the terms on which they leave have to be legal. The future relationship, however, at this stage is not a legal document. It can't be because they haven't left yet. So Mm. you can't negotiate a legal document with a third country when they're not yet a third country. Many MPs felt that the withdrawal agreement had greater standing. It had greater legal Mm. clarity, which it does because it has to. And they felt that Ireland, essentially, the EU would have no impetus to try and negotiate something different, that the backstop would end up being the future Mm. relationship and and that we wouldn't push to negotiate. So what the Prime Minister tried to do before Christmas was, I think, get clarity. And I think she received that clarity from the EU. Mm. The backstop means to be temporary. The withdrawal agreement, by its very legal terms, is temporary. And what we want is to negotiate the future relationship as quickly as possible. But as you said already, you've lost confidence and you expect it to be voted down. So uh, we have this situation then where Mrs May might or might not come back with a a plan B. It won't be accepted by Europe, whether it's accepted by the MPs. Uh, The MPs might come back in 21 days uh, with a plan B or C or whatever it is at this stage and it might be accepted and approved by the majority of MPs but the EU uh, isn't going to renegotiate this. There's one deal on offer as far as Europe is concerned. Uh, So where does that leave us? 
Well, I think the Prime Minister is very clear that she can't come forward with a second proposal that would form part of the withdrawal mm. agreement. She said that herself only last week, and I think we, we have to, to give her that. I, I don't think she's going to come forward with a suggestion that we try and amend the withdrawal agreement. The meeting, as I've said before Christmas, while she sought mm. reassurances that the withdrawal agreement would be temporary, she didn't seek to change the, 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 mm. it in itself and the content of it. So the options available to her, um, I suppose, are limited. And, and without going into them, I mm. maybe outline some of them already, because if the Parliament is not happy with what she proposes, and I think we have to wait and see what she proposes or what she uh, says, what her comments are that she makes, um, it is then up to them to put forward their proposals. And, and as I've said, uh, speaking to uh, different people, and, mm. and whether it's members uh, of Parliament or, or within the, the Scottish or the Welsh Parliament, there, there are suggestions that there could be proposals for a second referendum, for mm. an election, for a, an extension of Article 50, to revoke Article 50, mm. confidence motions, all of these kind of things. They're so the only options, though. There isn't scope for a, a, another withdrawal agreement, an alternative to the one that's on offer. No, there isn't. And and, and I think we've been clear about that. Mm. And I think the Prime Minister has mm. been very clear. So I think she is in a very difficult scenario. So for us, what we have to do, right. while we can only be bystanders, we don't want to influence it. It's not our parliament okay. and it's not our duty to do that. Mm. our duty is at home and to make sure that we are as prepared as possible mm. and, and, and I spoke before Christmas um, following the documentation that was published a 130 page document um, which now has moved from a more baseline scenario where we would have hoped to have mm. an, a deal to a, a no deal scenario okay, um, there's so a huge amount of work ongoing in that regard Cabinet met last week and what we'll see now on a very regular basis is Cabinet meeting giving the Taoiseach and all of us updates as to the work that individual ministers and departments are doing based on what we've seen published already. So that's ongoing and what I would do and I, and I would encourage and I, I did this before Christmas is encourage anybody who hasn't yet engaged whether it's with Meath County Council the Leos within Meath County Council uh, Enterprise Ireland, Board BIA Government, even online to look at this, look because at how your business This is happening. Impacted. As far as you're concerned Minister, this is the end game. Well, this is happening in as much as we are where we are. Mm. We don't have a deal. The agreement hasn't been signed mm. off on. Um, and if it's not, we still don't know what's going to happen. So I think because okay. of that uncertainty, people need to be prepared. Mm. They need to look at their own structure of their business, how they might be impacted. Mm. And if they haven't started planning, I, I would urge them to do so. So as far as you're concerned, the likelihood is that the House of Commons is going to reject the withdrawal agreement on Tuesday of next week. And as a result of that, there's realistically three options or so. One, that there'll be another referendum. Two, that there'll be a general election in Britain. Or three, that the United Kingdom crashes out of the European Union. Well, again, I, I can't say that and, and I don't think, you know, as I've said, but there, I've, I've are, given op- options. Are that there are, other options that you can envisage? Well, you know, again, I've, I've named five or six that could possibly take place. But obviously, again, that's uh, yet anything. Nothing has yet actually been proposed. These are all suggestions. These are all uh, things that people are putting out there. But, but is the there anything else that you can envisage, Minister? Well, I mean, you, you've named just three, but obviously mm. you could possibly extend Article 50. Um, mm. What we have always said, what the European Union have always said, is that if the EU came Pause and or asked... Pause uh, yeah. if, mm-hmm. if they came and asked for 
the Article 50 mm. to be extended, that the deadline mm. of March 29th was extended, then obviously we're not going to stand mm. in their way. But what we need to be sure about, and I think uh, I think that the German foreign minister, when he was over in Ireland this week, was clear about as well, is that we can't just extend it without any idea of what we might possibly be working towards. Mm. So if we're extending it to come... European elections, of course, which complicate European elections mm. happening in May. We can't just extend something without actually mm. knowing that there's going to be a change or something different being okay. brought forward. Right. So that, we're in a difficult yeah. very difficult position at the moment but again for me to speculate I've given a number of possible mm. scenarios none of those have actually been put forward because the vote hasn't happened mm. yet if the vote were to pass by by some way mm. I, you know at this stage as I've said my optimism is maybe not as optimistic I'm not as optimistic as I was before Christmas um, but at the same time if it does not pass what we're talking about is the possibility of moving closer towards a no-deal scenario. And a no-deal scenario for Ireland, we know the consequences, we've been talking about it for some time. But for the UK, this means they're a third country. It means they're no longer part of the EU institutions, the agencies, the bodies. It means that they're not part of the programmes that we mm. are all part of, like CAP, like the Erasmus programme for students, mm. the Horizon 2020, which is so vital for research innovation. Uh, it means there's no transition period. So all of this impacts on the UK in an even more significant way than it does for us. So I think MPs are obviously, they, they know this, okay. they're thinking about this and, and obviously we, we need to see how the vote passes and then what they do afterwards. We, mm. we can only wait and see what happens, but we can continue to plan at home and that's obviously what we're doing. Let's be optimistic for a second, or at least for the blink in an, of an eye, uh, because uh, there's the small chance uh, that... Uh, the withdrawal uh, agreement will be endorsed by MPs and uh, that the vote will uh, be carried. Uh, but even in that uh, scenario, there's the problem of the DUP. Now, uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly is to be given a say in the deal before the backstop is introduced. That's assuming that there is a Northern Ireland Assembly and the Irish government, it seems, is not talking to the DUP. Well, that's not the case at all, and, and we're always willing, and uh, Minister Coveney, the Thonister, who has had a huge amount of engagement... Mm. and, and Refused to say this morning to the BBC when the Irish government last spoke to the DUP. Well, a- again, I think there has been constant engagement, so I, I didn't hear the Thonister's interview, so I, I, can't, mm. I can't comment on it exactly, but, I mean, we want there to be an executive in the North. Um, what the UK have done this week is publish a paper which essentially would give the Northern Ireland Assembly the power to, so what we talk about in terms of the difference between the North and the rest of the UK, that would only happen if there is a change, mm. diversion and regulation. Well, Simon Coveney told the BBC this morning that the government has not spoken with the DUP recently and he declined to elaborate on that and say when the last time was. Uh, so, I, I mean, that is a concerning situation, isn't it? Well, I mean, recently could be December. So, I mean, again, mm. I, I can't comment when I don't know exactly, but my own view and my but own But when the Irish government is isn't saying when they spoke to uh, the main political party in Northern Ireland last, uh, well, surely then that begs questions. Well, I don't think so. Um, you only have to look at the fact that the Tánaiste was front and centre of the negotiations to try and make sure that we have an assembly up and running, which went on for a significant amount of time. And that engagement is always open to the DUP. It's always open, open to the to DUP. But the DUP is obviously not taking up on that uh, line of communication when Simon Coveney won't say uh, when he spoke or when the government last spoke to the DUP. 
But I mean, if, if the offer is there and if we are willing to engage with the DUP, mm. which we are, and which the Taunish and the Taoiseach oh, have always said It's not a criticism of the Irish government, uh, and I'm not even sure it's a criticism of the DUP. It's a problem. Well, we know that we're in the, begin- the, the, the middle of very difficult negotiations, um, and that has always been the case. And we know that the DUP um, are very concerned with what has been agreed in terms of the withdrawal agreement. They don't agree with what was agreed. We do. Um, so obviously there is going to be a difficulty there. I myself have met with DUP MPs when I'm in Europe, so that there is continuous ongoing engagement. Um, and even while we might disagree that engagement is really important. So, you know, I think while he mightn't have given a specific timeline, I, I can't give it to you now. Mm. I know myself, as I said, towards the second part of last year, I was meeting with DUP MPs. So, you know, that engagement needs to be continuous. Mm. But the proposal, as I've said, that was put forward by um, the the uh, UK government this week uh, essentially would allow the Northern Ireland Assembly to have a say so if a rule or regulation was to change in the UK that diverged from EU rules or regulations the Northern Ireland Assembly would have to vote themselves on whether they wanted to change it or not. Now obviously if as you've said in mm. the best case scenario this withdrawal agreement was agreed the UK would have to obviously make sure that they uh, adhered to the legal rules and regulations of the withdrawal agreement. So mm. there, you know, what happens within the United Kingdom, including Northern Ireland, is obviously a matter for them. But if the agreement so was So Sammy reached, Wilson was right when he said it was window dressing. Well, I, I don't think it is because I think mm. they would still have the option to change with the UK or not. But I, I think, again, the UK have been very clear that they're not going to suddenly mm. start changing uh, and they're not going to start deregulating things. They're not going to reduce the standards mm. of re- labour rules or regulations. But the backstop or, would be in place uh, and there would be no veto given to the DUP or the Northern Ireland Assembly. Well, there would have to be a consensus. The the, the, hand, the, the way that it works in yeah. Northern Ireland, there mm. would have to be a consensus from both parties. So again, this is part of where the difficulty lies. We don't so have an assembly, assembly up and running. But if there was an assembly in place, uh, would it be given a veto? The Assembly would be given an opportunity from, and again, this is a paper that has been published. Mm. This is not something that I have great detail on because mm. it's not something that has been put in place because we don't have an Assembly. Mm. Um, and this is the problem we want, we need. Mm. The people of Northern Ireland, I think, should have that voice representing them and, and should have had it throughout all of these negotiations. Um, but the sooner we can get it up and running, the better. What we are being told and what my understanding is that the Parliament would have an option to vote on whether or not they would move with the UK in terms of regulation, but they would have to work within the parameters Mm. of the withdrawal agreement. They would have to work within the parameters of the backstop. But again, getting into greater detail, I I don't have it because I don't think the paper itself goes into that detail because we don't have a Parliament in the North or we don't have an executive um, and we don't yet have a withdrawal agreement that's signed off. Mm. So again, we're talking uh, hypothetically. uh, Hypothetically or otherwise, so so it's impossible to imagine the Assembly having a, a veto on the backstop if we enter into this withdrawal agreement. Having said all of that, uh, it looks as though uh, we may be in the end game. We may not because uh, of extensions. Uh, Is that where you think we're going at this stage? Uh, Do you believe uh, that this process would be extended and would be here in a a number of months continuing to talk uh, about how this might be achieved? 
Well, I, I think either way, whether we have an agreement on a vote, I think we'll be talking about this for, for quite some time because um, there's obviously, you know, it, it's been a huge amount of work that has gone into this and whether uh, we have an extension or not, this is going to go on for some time. Um, again, it's hard to predict. I, I am not as optimistic that the vote will pass. What the Prime Minister can say then afterwards, obviously, we will have to wait and see. And if the Parliament are not happy with that, what the proposals what proposals are brought forward um, again we will have to wait and see so I, you know there are a lot of options out there but for us the focus is and has to be on making sure that people are prepared and as prepared as possible because mm. we cannot and we would not try and, and would you say everything is possible and everything is e- as equally possible as everything else in other words you wouldn't uh say that there's a, a favourite possibility in all of this, uh, whether that's a, an extension or a, a crash out or a general election or another referendum? At this stage I think it's very hard to tell what will actually happen until mm. the vote takes place and it's not uh, yeah, trying yeah, to evade yeah. a question, no, 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 I no, just no, think no. Mm-hmm. it's very difficult mm. to... Well you're answering the question fair yeah, uh, everything is possible I, I, I think anything amounts. is possible mm. at this stage but mm. again we have to see you know Again, the consequences of this vote not passing is that we are closer to a no-deal scenario and I don't think that that's what parliamentarians Mm. in Ireland or in the UK want. Um, And so I think that obviously has to be taken on board. I know that that is being taken on board Mm. and we just have to wait and see what the outcome is. But again, the only thing that we can do is prepare at home. That's ongoing and will continue. Okay, crucial times. Minister, thank you indeed for coming in to us and Happy New Year, by the way. And the same to you and to to all your listeners. I hope everyone has a good year and had a good Christmas. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, That's the Minister for European Affairs and Fine Gael TD for me, these telemacentee. Michael Reed on LMFM. If you're renewing your car insurance uh, this week, take a, a look at the bill and imagine for a moment if it was €50 euro less, then imagine what you might do with that €50 euro and then ask yourself how you could get it. Uh, well, you shouldn't be paying it. It would seem the €50 euro extra that you're paying and the €50 euro extra that I'm paying and everybody else uh, who is decent and honest goes to cover faults insurance claims. Uh, This is according to Allianz. Uh, If you're looking at uh, the front page of the Irish Daily Mail, uh, you can see the headline uh, that uh, car insurance scammers should be prosecuted now and that Allianz says that it challenged as many as 1,500 claimants in the court. Almost half of the cases it takes, 45% of them, are potentially fraudulent. Let's talk about this with Dermot Jewell, Policy and Council Advisor with the Consumers Association of Ireland. Good morning to you, Dermot, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. I'm sure, like me, you wouldn't scoff at the idea of having €50 to spend yourself. Oh, no, not at all. Um, And it... I mean, it, every, everything that's coming out today makes sense. It's not that it has not been there before, because the, the, to give credit to the industry, they have been trying to challenge and deal with fraud for quite a period of time. Um, they met with a lot of stakeholders, including ourselves, and put forward various ideas, if you like, or means sense of reality could be brought into it, but it still comes back to the bottom line, which I think is outlined quite fairly well um, in the newspapers today, that there's only, right now, the only real way of doing it is to challenge the cases. And of course, the problem with that is, yes, you will get a positive reaction and a positive result in a number of the cases, but in others, you, you're, you're, you're testing the water. There's an element that may not be clear and it costs money to check it um, and to bring it to a challenge. And that indirectly also 
impacts back onto the consumer and the cost of their insurance because the case may be very, very clear and clean mm. and honest, but you've got to test it. And that in itself is raising too many issues and too many costs because the system's not fit for purpose. Uh, and, uh, of course, the problem that I have with all of this is uh, that I'm the victim. Anybody who pays yeah. their car insurance is the victim. We are the ones who are being defrauded by these scammers. Uh, and there's many ways of uh, defrauding us, it would seem. There are. There are very many ways of defrauding. And the problem lies in, in I suppose, it's they, they, for the first time in a long time, it's kind of starting to seep out into the public domain what, what the issues are. It's it's where if if a claim is taken, there's an undertaking given, kind of a, mm. a promise that, yeah, look, whatever I'm saying here is true. Um, and it, it's taken on that, you know, honest basis. But let's be honest. Let's be honest about it. Let's be realistic about it. In today's world, in all honesty, that doesn't hold up because you do need um, an, an, a definitive means through which somebody states, um, hand on a book, hand on heart, whatever. But it's a verifying statement, an affidavit of, of form that you are guaranteeing and you're taking an undertaking that everything that you stated in this form is true. And that is the only means through which you will be able to follow through mm. and move on with putting a stop to it. Because putting a stop to it requires people to be caught. That's one thing. And that happens a lot. Right. Well, what it you, needs is consequences. You hear of people staging accidents so yeah. that they can make an insurance claim. Uh, you hear of people exaggerating injuries so that they can get more in their personal injury claim. And then I suppose what also feeds into this is the idea that there's people who don't have insurance themselves and when claims are made against them, the rest of us pay for it. That's exactly it. So there have to be consequences and they have got it. And again, we're starting to see it in other jurisdictions. The bottom line of it is if you if you do take a claim that's fraudulent, then as with any other criminal offence, because it is a criminal offence, there are consequences and they will be either and or imprisonment um, or some form of financial loss or a penalty. Um, Financial losses and penalties can be difficult, but there are ways and means, particularly when it's through insurance. But the consequences of imprisonment are a potentially serious, significant um, element of, of making people think twice and three times before they go forward with it. And it allows... As, as we're coming back to where we started, it allows the industry to say, yep, yeah, all the money we've input into this, it's worth it. You can see, you, you should now um, look forward to seeing your, your insurance claims, your insurance costs come down because the claims have come down. There will always continue to be claims. But um, mm. realistically, if you put in the proper underlying, under, under supporting elements that's, that, that make it you know, clear and honest, then it will work. And right now, it's, it's as I say, it's not working for a lot of reasons. One, one of the key elements in all of this, though, is, is it's, it's kind of important to mention it, Michael. The Oireachtas Committee that looked at all of this, that's been, you know, over the last two years, been waiting for, for progress to be made, wrote to all of the stakeholders in December, including ourselves, and they, they, they asked a simple question, how do you think it's going? What way is it progressing? And you're seeing the reaction from the insurance sector here saying, well, it's not really moving at the pace we'd like it to move. And from our own point of view, we came forward and said, well, A, it's not moving at the pace we'd like it to move, but B, nobody's telling us exactly or even remotely what exactly they're doing, how they're doing it, or when they're planning on doing it. So there is a problem there. I'm not saying people are not working in the background. Mm. Um, And I do know, for example, 
one of the huge um, problems that's going to be there is putting into um, statute a requirement for, for example, somebody taking a claim must add uh, a swear of verifying affidavit. Elements like that, you, you, it's a great idea, but to have it installed in every single piece of, of, of legislative documentation, it takes time. So I know that, but I just wish people mm. would tell us this is what we're trying to do. Uh, I take it that's not the end of the story either. Uh, are we living in a, a compo culture? Uh, because uh, we hear all sorts of questionable claims. Uh, we were talking recently uh, about uh, Playground in Carlo having to close down because of a claim following an injury in the playground and how that was uh, leading to a, a massive increase in the insurance premium. I think it, it was resolved eventually. But we hear of children uh, not being able to run and play grounds uh, because of insurance indeed uh, there was that story of the boy whose ashes on ash wednesday uh, didn't come off after 24 hours you, you're entirely right there's not a, a day or a week goes by michael without us hearing of some element of um what has become known as compensation culture compo culture um we're, we're, we're in the U.S., it's 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 predominantly known as a, a form of ambulance chasing when there's an accident or where, wherever that happens. Now it's moved on in every shape and form. Anything that can be claimed where there's a potential for an insurance policy and deep pockets, um, individuals will focus on it and go after it. And it's a huge problem. And it's 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 why all we're we're inclined to focus very much on on motor insurance because we all must pay it by law. But all of the other elements of insurance come under this kind of um, strict um, demand um, and problems without us hearing about it. Because, as I say, it's not the one that we all must have under a legal requirement. So everybody is trying to deal with it in whatever way they can. But there's, there's, there's no... There's no easy solution to it, and every element of it is costly because you, you need to bring in people. You've got to invest money in, in, in investigations. You've got to bring in technology. All of the elements that, that are there um, to try to combat what is, the best way of putting it, um, an easily made claim, and then you've got to deal with it. I, I mean, I will honestly say I acknowledge the difficulty for people in that side of the business, which is how do I know this is true or not? Well, you go through the verifiable and the expert reports, etc., etc., etc. But you can't tell if a person is lying or not unless you spend money and time and effort. And that's the difficulty. All right. And sometimes spending money saves money. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, yeah. though. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Dermot Jewell, Policy and Council Advisor with uh, the Consumers Association of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Members of uh, the Gardaí, the Defence Forces and the Irish Aviation Authority are to attend a meeting of uh, the National Civil, Civil Aviation Threat and Risk Group today, a meeting which has been called by the Minister for Transport, Shane Ross, to assess the threat to Irish airports from drones. This follows uh, the massive disruption at Gatwick before Christmas and, I guess, uh, the possible copycat action that has happened recently at Heathrow and indeed the threat to airports it seems across the world James Lawless is Finnafall TD and is party's spokesperson on science and technology and research and development he's produced draft legislation on regulation of drones and he joins us now and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, to begin with uh, before we talk about the solution how great a problem 
are we looking at the moment following the success of those people who tried to bring Gatwick down, if you can call it success? Uh, do you expect that there will be further type incidents across the world? I, I, good morning. Um, I think it's very possible. I think the threat is very real. Uh, I think the threat is multiplying. Um, drones started off maybe five years ago. Well, I mean, they were around for a long time, but say this time five years ago, they were a small niche hobbyist sector. People that were specialists would go to special shops to buy them and generally knew what they were doing and it was a relatively closed group. Um, it exploded in the last couple of years to the extent that Santa Claus, I believe, is bringing drones now to many children uh, this last Christmas and, and the last couple of Christmases. And really, the problem we have at the moment, I mean, it was probably quite a deliberate attempt uh, what happened at Gatwick and potentially at Heathrow recently as well. But there's nothing to stop, you know, even a 12-year-old, uh, and it's not the children that are to blame, but I mean, the, the, the lack of regulation. Santa Claus can bring a drone to mm. a child who goes out and flies it across the motorway, you know, across the road from the house. And um, there's nothing really to stop that at the moment. There's very little regulation in place. And um, this is a real threat. The number of drones globally uh, and in Ireland has massively ex- uh, exploded. Also, as, as is so often the case, the regulation hasn't kept up. So, for instance, there is a little bit of regulation. There's a statutory instrument, which is a form of secondary regulation. It's kind of a weaker form of regulation and um, was put in place a few years ago. But even now, it's out of date because it applies to the weight uh, and it talks to drones over certain weight restrictions. But as technology moves on, as it does so quickly, uh, the drones are so much lighter now than they were a few years ago. So already the regulations are out of date because, um, you know, we really lightweight drones and mm-hmm. they're really easy to control. They're actually quite cheap. You can buy them at Smith's Toy Store. As I say, people get them from Santa. Um, and anyone that wants to get a drone can get one within about 20 minutes on any main street. But there are updated regulations coming in from Europe which will uh, apply to all European countries which will see lighter drones banned within five kilometres of airports, isn't there? That's right. So th- th- there's, a, there's measures at the European level uh, to do this. Um, they've been talked about for a while. They're not in force yet. Um, so we're waiting for those to come through. I think that I, th- I, th- I welcome the fact that the minister is meeting um, the stakeholders today. Mm. Um, I'm at the Irish Aviation Authority. I, I published legislation on this, uh, which is in the system uh, for the last two years. I published it in 2017, uh, in the like 2016. I published it in 2017, trying to bring in regulation, trying to bring in common sense regulation. Because one thing that we don't want to do is take away anybody's phone. And look, there's a lot of good uses for drones. Aerial photography, uh, weather forecasting, you know, the hobbyist activity, mm. uh, just to take thought of it. So there's lots of good things. Uh, we don't want to take all that away, but we didn't want to manage them. Uh, there should be mandatory registration for all drones, not just drones of a certain size. Um, there should be uh, uh, limits to where they can be flown to places like, as you say, five kilometres outside airports. Mm. I know, for example, the US Embassy in Dublin and Phoenix Park mm. already has a, a, a no-fly zone over it. Um, but we have to kind of do character stick. I, I would say what we should do as well as taking things away and um, we should actually give something back. So, for example, like the Quilta uh, could make available forest areas. Uh, the OPW could, certain sites, certain castles, certain historical buildings, maybe certain days of the year could be designated as, as drone-friendly days. We could go and fly and take take photos. And if we balance the regulations in such a way that we give something back uh, for also putting putting rules in place, uh, I think we'd be better positioned. But when I met the IAA two years ago when, when I was introducing my bill, they told me that they didn't, the, the regulations, they didn't see a need so they, they saw a need, but they didn't see any point in bringing through new regulation at that time because they just didn't have the resources to manage it. All right. Well, there's a lot of people who are very concerned about their own privacy, let alone their yeah, own security, uh, because yeah. uh, I, I think there's a, a very 
uh, good line of logic which would say that these are, are very good tools for potential burglars uh, and so on uh, but they're possibly good tools for terrorists let alone anything else uh, I mean I, I suppose the reason the planes were grounded when these drones were in the sky was because they were interfering with airspace uh, and if they can do that well uh, I would imagine then there's even greater potential but even if you ban these things from uh, flying within five kilometres of an airport uh, what's to stop somebody from doing it how do you identify who owns these drones as it stands yeah so, so, so one of the things in my legislation is, is a mandatory registration procedure and it's kind of like a license plate now that sounds like an old-fashioned idea but it's mm. actually pretty straightforward so some registration markers so it can be uh, a number hanging on the back of it it can be something marked on the chip it can be something implanted, implanted on the on the device but basically, when you buy a drone, and this would have to be enforced with the manufacturer as well, whether they're imported or put into the shops, when you buy a drone, a point is said, you register your, your, your drone, it goes onto a national system. This is already in place for drones above a certain weight, mm. but as I say, it hasn't kept up, up pace with the new drones that are out there. And then the, the drone would actually be chipped, and it's such a way you could, same, same as if a car is an accident, mm. you know, it, is, it has a license plate. But, the same kind of idea, but you're using different technology. Okay, um, but what if I buy it off you then, and then I sell it on to my second cousin? Well, I, I bet like a car, it's mm. responsibility to the last person that has a license. And again, if, if this is at the moment, it's in statutory instrument, which is a kind of a weak form of regulation. If this is in primary legislation, if this is law, the, the powers are a lot greater, and the likes of the Gardaí um, have, have a lot more power to enforce it. Um, the other thing to look at as well, there's a thing called geofencing. Geofencing is a technology approach, which geofencing basically says, if you fly, if a geofence was applied, it's a sort of a um, radar system around the likes of an airport or, or the US Hemisphere, some of these secure sites. And it actually, if the drones are equipped with software, if they're flying through a geofence area, they just can't get into it. They, they just kind of crash out of it. They can't get through the barrier. It's kind of an invisible barrier. Mm. These are the kind of technology solutions that can be put forward. Um, but they do need legislation to, to enable them. And I've been speaking to Gardaí, and Gardaí has turned the hair because they would love to have the powers, and the emergency services mm. would love to have the powers to shoot them down, to geofence them, to use technology, to use radar systems. Um, there's an awful lot they can, they can do. I actually was talking to my colleague, Shane Castles, um, when you're local to these in the Midwest there, was up with the young scientist yesterday, and he was just saying he was blown away with some of the drone devices, and even for the young people are coming forward with um, in terms of innovation, but there's so much there. But I've been talking to the emergency services, and they are really at their wit's end. And as you, as you say, mm-hmm. even away from the sort of big international terrorist type uh, activities, mm-hmm. Old-fashioned burglaries, flying to someone's farm, flying over someone's mm-hmm. back garden. So, hey, and, can I shoot a drone down if there's one over my land? That will have to go to the courts. Uh, that, that's, that's a grey area at the moment. Mm. Um, it's the kind of thing that might end up going to court. Because it's not um, just the guards who want to shoot them down. I know a lot of people yeah, want to shoot them down and they don't know if I they'll know. be in trouble themselves. Yeah, well, look, if, if a drone is flying specifically overhead in your back garden, you know, around your farm, um, it's already breaking the law, it's already interfering with your privacy. It may have malicious intent. Um, I suppose what I tell people, it's probably best advised not to do that. But if you did do that, it would be very interesting test case to go before the court, because uh, that is a grey area at the moment. All right. Well, I imagine we'll be hearing something like that uh, in the not-too-distant future. But we we'll leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. James Lawless, Finnefall TD, and his party spokesperson on science, technology, research and development. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, three deaths uh, from meningitis in uh, the last fortnight has led to the HSE asking people to be vigilant about the symptoms of meningococcal meningitis. And we're joined now by Dr. Peter Finnegan, who's a specialist in public health medicine with uh, the HSE Dublin North East area. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed for joining us here uh, this morning on the programme. 
have you uh, can you give us any more information on uh, the three people who have died uh, I'm told uh, from the papers the reports in the papers this morning uh, that they've been of uh, different age groups uh, that's correct yes and uh, no I can't give you any further details than that uh, all all I can say is that they're different age groups and there are different strains of meningitis they aren't all the same strain in different parts of the country in, in different parts of the country, yes. Uh, and the three deaths are part of a clump of 11 cases that have been notified to the HSE. That's right. And the, the last week of 2018 and the first week of 2019, we've had 11 cases notified nationally. Okay. Uh, and obviously, uh, there's concern. Uh, what can people do to watch out for this? Uh, if uh, people are, are feeling unwell, um, uh, is uh, that uh, something uh, that uh, should result in them seeing a GP or how should they respond? Well, it, this, this uh, infection starts with a sort of a flu-like illness and it can be quite mild at the start, but then it gets more and more severe and the child usually is quite ill, high temperature, aches and pains maybe headaches, uh, drowsiness, maybe discomfort from bright lights, uh, neck stiffness if it's, if it's meningitis, there could be vomiting, diarrhea, and the rash that you get with the septicemia, it's, uh, it doesn't uh, disappear when you press it last against it or, or stretch the skin over the rash, and that's characteristic of this uh, meningococcal septicemia. Now, the thing is, if a child is very ill, to seek medical attention quickly because it's very important that antibiotics are given for this infection as quickly as possible. Uh, and a lot of people would uh, be familiar with uh, that last test. Uh, if uh, you fail the last test, if the rash doesn't disappear, does that mean you have meningitis? Well, other things can cause that sort of rash, but uh, certainly if a child has a, an illness like that and that sort of rash, it is a red light, an alarm bell, and that medical attention should be sought as quickly as possible. Headaches, drowsiness, uh, rapid breathing, uh, muscle pain, fever, uh, these are also symptoms, I understand. That's correct. And uh, sometimes cold hands and and feet uh, from poor circulation. And normally if you press on the skin uh, on the body, the area will turn white for a few seconds, five or six seconds. But with this, because of poor circulation, it takes a long time and the skin remains pale for quite a while. That's a sign of poor capillary circulation. Um, One other thing I should mention is that these uh, infections are preventable by vaccinations and vaccinations against the meningococcal C is given at 6 months and 13 months and the the men B, which is the other strain, is given at 2, 4 and 12 months of age. And it's very important that we keep the vaccination rate up. That's one way of making sure your child won't catch meningitis. If your child has been vaccinated, does it follow that they won't contract this disease? You're given almost uh, full protection by both of those vaccines. And since we introduced the Men's C vaccine uh, quite a long time ago, the, the amount of Men's C has fallen way down. We only introduced the meningitis B vaccine a few years ago, but even since then, the number of cases has fallen considerably, and it is important to get vaccinated. Most of these uh, cases are caught by people who have never been vaccinated. And is it contagious? It is infectious, yes. Uh, Not highly infectious, but it's carried by a lot of people that doesn't cause any infection or any illness at all, but, but... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. They can spread it to people who are vulnerable who will catch the infection. So concern then, uh, again, I imagine as uh, schools uh, start to regroup and children are uh, together uh, and advice for parents not to send children in if there are at all suspicions uh, and for teachers to watch out for symptoms in children. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't advise not sending children to school. I mean, clearly, if they're if they're ill, they, they they should go to school. But it's not a highly infectious illness. It's not like flu or other infections, measles or chickenpox that are highly infectious. This is uh, relatively uh, n- not as infectious as the others. But and there's no need to keep your child from school because of this. We always get an increase in meningococcal infection in. Uh, late winter, early spring. So this is just a seasonal, it's just a bit more of a seasonal variation than normal, but we always get this increase every single year. Okay. All right. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us, Dr. Peter Finnegan, Specialist in Public Medicine with the HSE Dublin North East. Now, let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Yes, Michael, some comment in relation to your interview at the top of the programme with Minister Helen McEntee on Brexit and what is going to happen. Seamus from Dundalk thinks it's only inevitable that a general election is going to happen in the UK. There's no way that Theresa May has enough support. It's just going on and on and on, says Seamus, who predicts that there'll only be one result, a hard Brexit. Okay. (laughs) Mairead phoned in and she wonders, is she the only one confused about Mm. what is going on and what is going on in the UK Parliament? She says, what exactly do they want? Because she is not really sure. She says, it seems that they don't want... 
they, they don't want a no deal Brexit, but yet they don't want a backstop. But they won't get a deal unless they keep their commitment to the backstop. Have I got it right, Michael? Because it's hard to comprehend and hard to know exactly what they want. Yeah, well, I think that's uh, <laughs> one... Uh, strand to it uh, because uh, I think there's uh, many different people who want many different things. Okay, um, Fran says mm. if there is a second referendum in the UK, that's a dictator running a country. There's no democracy and there's no democracy in this country either. We have seen that before with the referendums. When they don't get what they want, they just have them again. Mm. So there you okay. go, that's his thoughts yeah. on it. Well, I mean, if you don't have a second referendum and you don't have a, a deal, is that what the people wanted? And are you denying the people the democratic opportunity to revisit it? Yes. Will people have changed their minds, haven't seen well, what's gone on and what yeah. the implications what might the be? the outcome of the first vote was, you might change your mind. Tom from Drogheda wants to know that if Brexit happens on the 29th of March, will people who work for a British registered company be allowed to work in the Republic of Ireland? That's the question he phoned in with this morning. Well, I think so, yes. I haven't heard anything different. Yeah, well, I mean, there should be freedom of movement regardless. Uh, So, yes, that should be the case. Jerry wonders if you think, Michael, that uh, the deadline date will be extended at this stage. Mm. Yes. Because he thinks it possibly will yeah. and, it'll, mm. and that it could be another six months before we have any, any real word as to what's going to happen. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, and, you know, God knows I might be wrong, but personally, I think the only thing that you could say is definite at this stage is that there won't be a deal next week. Uh, and uh, after that, uh, I think even odds on uh, the extension or the election or the rerun of the referendum. Uh, on regards to your interview with Dermot Jewell on insurance, mm. Deirdre phoned in to say that she feels that people who make false claims makes it hard for those who have genuine cases and those who try to con the system should be punished severely, even though they won't have any luck for it. Mm. Yeah. She says, on drones, uh, we had a call from a raid who says, I was lying out in my back garden over the summer, Michael, mm. and one of those things was hovering above me yeah. and it really gave me the heebie-jeebies. Mm. Uh, you feel that you are being spied on. She says, what is it nowadays? Everywhere you look, there seems to be somebody watching you. People have cameras now on their front doors and also the dash cams on their cars. It feels like you are always being watched. I don't think drones should be allowed over people's private property. Yeah, well, it's one thing having a, a camera on your own front door or in uh, your car uh, but it's a different thing when you put a camera into somebody else's garden. I think that uh, really is uh, taking uh, a liberty. And, you know, I mean, if somebody was looking over your wall, you'd say, what are you looking at? You would. And you Gillian know? lives mm-hmm. in a rural area. She also got in touch and says that she saw one of the drones um, over her property mm. and that it really, I suppose... The word she used was that she was scared because mm. she was afraid that her home was being targeted. Well, because she says you hear, in, yeah. you mm. hear reports about mm. this happening. Mm. And when you see one flying over you, even though it could be innocent, uh, you just have that extra concern. And as she says, she was scared that her home was going to be the victim of an attack. Yeah, yeah. Uh, moving on from that, if I can go back to the discussion we had yesterday uh, with the INMO in relation to the strike action by the nurses, we have had a couple of calls in relation to that and many still, I might add, Michael, 
seem to be in favour of, or at least supporting the nurses and mm. what they are doing. Mm. Um, Antoinette says that nurses should get what they are looking for. They are the backbone of the services. They are the people who are there with, with the patient all through what it, you know what a patient has to go through in the hospital. They are there for the the shift. They report to the doctors and, and nurses. And when they do their rounds, they are caring and always available to answer any queries a patient may have. Uh, Paula says, I support the nurses. The work they do is very hard work, Michael, and I don't think anybody could argue with that. And I don't think that they do get paid enough. Another listener says, it's about time that the nurses stood up to the authorities and got better working conditions. Our health sector is falling apart. Okay. So we'll finish on that for the moment. All right, strong thoughts. Uh, Your time has been reduced somewhat there, uh, but we will come back with more comments a little bit later. Please, because there were a lot of people Mm. on to me, so if we could get time for them, it'd be great. All right, and uh, we should have time for even more comments if people want to add to what's been said. Uh, We'll have extra time for your thoughts and comments on the programme a little bit later on today. In the meanwhile, you can contact Marie or Maggie now by ringing 1857-15958. Michael Reed on LMFM. The President of America, Donald Trump, wants uh, to build a border wall with uh, Mexico. He's going to build uh, the wall and he's going to get the money to build uh, the wall, although he's not being cooperated with by the Democrats. And as a result, he's shut government down. I've been speaking with Larry Donnelly, who's a law lecturer at NUI Galway and a political columnist with uh, the journal.ie because whilst from a distance this might seem funny almost uh, it's far from that for the 800,000 federal workers who are waiting on a paycheck yeah it's a desperately serious problem for them uh they were on twitter this morning outlining uh, some of the, the concerns that they have uh both in terms of paying their mortgages paying their rents looking after their children. Uh, indeed, one small factory owner who works directly with the government, uh, he's looking at having to lay off his entire workforce because uh, all of the orders that he's been working on, uh, payments has been suspended, so he literally can't pay the bills. So the human consequences, amidst all the high-level mm. political wrangling, the human consequences of this should not be overlooked. All right. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, when it comes uh, to the human consequences, it's not just those who work for the government and are hoping to get paid. It's also those who avail of uh, those services. Uh, and there's uh, concern about the most needy and food vouchers that they are hoping to get. Yes. I mean, a lot of people who be dependent on uh, government subsidies, the most vulnerable in society, uh, they're at risk here. And I think we're seeing behind the scenes some indications that Republicans are well aware of this uh, and are making moves to ensure that these things do happen, no matter what happens with the government uh, shutdown, that these people do receive the benefits that they so desperately need. Because, uh, Michael, you're looking at potentially a humanitarian crisis mm. and people who can't afford food uh, don't have the food stamps and other things that they need to get by. Uh, and that would be really disgraceful. And also, uh, obviously, the president and his party are going to bear the brunt of responsibility for this. But all politicians uh, will get blamed at some level uh, if people wind up in horrible situations. That doesn't seem to phase Mr. Trump, does it? Uh, I mean, you say this is a, a terrible situation, but he's saying it could go on indefinitely. Yeah, and, I, you know, I said on Twitter myself last night that there is just no political rhyme or reason to what the president is doing. 
Uh, I think in many ways he's playing into the hands of what many uh, of, of his worst critics have said about him. Uh, it's a total indifference, I think, to uh, ordinary people. Uh, it's also, in a certain way, uh, an indifference to democracy. This would be one thing if the president's party still controlled the House of Representatives. Mm. But there was an election in November, and elections have consequences. And the consequence is he doesn't have control of the House. He doesn't have the votes. So he can push as hard as he wants on this, but when you don't have the numbers, and indeed when you see people within his own party starting to waver, uh, you can't get very much done. All right, but Mr. Trump would say it's the fault of uh, the Democrats, and uh, he said he had uh, a meeting with Chuck and Nancy, a total waste of time, and then he walked out. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, again, I don't know what he was at there. I don't know why he even bothered to go to the meeting. It's very clear that the Democrats are not going to back down uh, on their position. They have put forward uh, about a billion and a half uh, in terms of border security funding. Uh, there is some, uh, I suppose, leeway there for negotiations on how much money he might get for border security. Mm. But if he's not willing to budge one iota uh, without full funding for the wall, uh, I don't think that they're going to get very far. And, Michael, here's where it gets interesting. The president has mooted uh, that he has uh, a power to declare a state of emergency, yeah. uh, that he can effectively bypass the Congress and do what he likes and allocate this, find this money somewhere uh, and effectively start to build the wall. Uh, the issue then becomes uh, this would be open to court challenge. Uh, all sorts of chaos would break out. It would arguably precipitate a constitutional crisis. And whatever about the merits and demerits, some scholars say that he has the power to do it, others mm. uh, differ on that front. A- at any rate, the political fallout for the, from that for the Republican Party uh, would be disastrous. So I just don't know where he's going. And what well, it's about €5 billion Euro that he's looking for to build this wall. Uh, why is he looking for this money at all, Larry? I thought the Mexicans were going to pay for it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things in his crazy, uh, you know, his crazy rallies throughout the campaign. He said, you know, Mexico is going to pay for this wall, even though it's going to have a negative impact, arguably, on their economy and their citizens. Uh, they were going to pay for this wall. Uh, in his address the other night to the nation, he took quite a different tone. All of a sudden, he said, Mexico will indirectly pay for it through the benefits that will accrue to the United States mm. uh, via the newly nego- renegotiated North American Free Trade Agreement. That's a big difference between saying that the Mexican government was going to pay for uh, the wall. So he's climbed down precipitously, I think, uh, from that. Uh, and again, uh, you know, he's, he, one of the things I think does animate this president, and I think it has endeared him to a certain segment of the electorate, uh, is one of the things I think he has always hated about uh, ordinary conventional politicians is they don't live up to the promises that they make. He seems almost single-mindedly possessed with keeping the promise that he made uh, to the people uh, about building the wall. And indeed, many commentators, and I would agree with it, think that even some of his most ardent backers would have thought that the wall was sort of a metaphor for being tougher on the border, that they didn't really take him 100% literally, that they just thought he was going to get tough uh, on border security. So why he's going down this deeply controversial path, which the majority of the American people Mm -hmm. oppose, when on the other hand, he could be talking about all the good things that are undeniably happening with the economy, total mystery to me. I, I take it he, he didn't convince you at all in the arguments he, he made. He, he was talking about some of the things that some of uh, the illegal aliens who got into the United States did. Uh, an Air Force veteran raped and murdered and beaten to death with a hammer. Uh, somebody else uh, killing and beheading and dismembering their neighbour. 
Well, well, look, it is a fact that some people who've come uh, across the border illegally have done horrendous things, and obviously uh, our hearts and our prayers have to go out to the people who've been affected, and I can completely understand why some of them would desperately want a wall because because they've been directly affected uh, by this behavior, and of course that's tragic. The reality, however, is that the vast majority of violent crimes committed uh, in America against other Americans are by their fellow Americans. They're not committed by... Uh, by people who come across the border illegally. And there was a fascinating uh, program on Teach Kaha last night, which despite the, the, the fear-mongering, I think, that is featured so prominently in this debate, most of the cities along the U.S.'s southern border are relatively violence-free when compared with their northern counterparts. That would seem to rebut a lot of the arguments uh, that have been made by the president and by others who so desperately seem to want to build this wall. All right. Uh, you might say it's a medieval approach uh, to security, and uh, Donald Trump has been talking about that. Indeed, the Taoiseach has been talking about uh, this wall and saying you can build as many walls as you want, uh, but people will still get in. They'll dig tunnels or they'll climb over, uh, as uh, the case may be. And he, he talked about the awful situation between Israel and Palestine. And that's the context uh, that Donald Trump mentioned to this medieval approach in. He said it worked then and it works even better now. Israel put a, a wall up and it's been 99.9% successful. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that most people would dispute that and I think that goes along with some of his more fanciful uh, ideas. He seems to be convinced that the wall would be uh, extremely efficacious, both in keeping people and the and drugs and other things uh, out of the United States. But as one politician in the U.S. said, and I think she's quite right to say it, uh, you build a 50-foot wall, you're going to find somebody with a 51-foot ladder. Uh, as long as people are in desperate situations uh, and are motivated beyond anything to get to the United States, uh, they will find uh, a way to do so. Uh, now, again, I think we have to have a secure border. I think Democrats are agreed on that. They have to be measures. Not everybody, unfortunately, can come across. But this seems to me to be another uh, deeply inhumane uh, aspect of the president's policies. And in in advocating this, he again uh, is exploiting that sentiment, fear, uh, Mm. that I think he wrote to the White House uh, in 2016. He knows how powerful an emotion uh, it can be. The problem for him is that seemingly it only motivates about 40 percent of the American people, his base, uh, to to rally around him. And if he's to be reelected... It's the softer Trump voters. It's the people who voted for him for all sorts of different reasons, not necessarily because they agree with everything he said. Those are the people he needs to have back in his corner uh, for re-election. And to that end, uh, he should be talking about things like rebuilding American infrastructure, winning over again people in middle America to his side. Those are the things he should be Mm. talking about, not immigration. Politically. It makes almost no sense. Clearly not Mr. Trump's view, though. Uh, and uh, you spoke uh, about him declaring a national emergency to force the funding to pay for this wall. Uh, is there the prospect of him doing that at all, despite the legal obstacles that you were talking about, Larry? Uh, because he's to travel to the American-Mexican border in Texas uh, today, uh, where, again, he'll be talking about uh, the security and humanitarian crisis that uh, this poses and that it's a crisis of the heart and a crisis of the soul. Is he willing to go all the way and overcome those obstacles to take on that crisis? Uh, Well, I I sincerely hope uh, for all sorts of reasons that he won't. 
but I fear that he could. Uh, and indeed, one of the reasons he's been persuaded not to do so already has been a small coterie of kind of far-right commentators who he seems to listen to uh, ahead of uh, other more reasonable political tacticians for whatever reason. Um, but he, he seems to have been persuaded by their arguments uh, about the, the legal challenges that will drag on if he tries to go down this route. And also the other argument that they've made is that this would be, uh, I suppose, an expansion of presidential power uh, that ultimately Democrats could take advantage of uh, in future. But the president, given uh, how motivated he is by uh, petty personal grievances and anger, et cetera, given the tenor of that failed meeting yesterday with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, in which he stormed out of the office, this is not beyond him. Uh, and I just worry about the kind of crisis, uh, whatever about the crisis he says exists on the border, we would probably have a constitutional crisis in the United States if he, could went down, if he goes down this road. Is he being populist? The Mexican uh, president seems to think he's electioneering. If he's right, well, that would uh, paint a, a pretty bad picture of American sentiment. Yeah, and I, 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 you know, I firmly don't think so. I, I think he thinks, uh, both because I, you know, I, I adverted to his, uh, I suppose, propensity for desperately wanting to keep a promise that he made during the campaign, but also what I think is his fundamental misread of the electorate. He thinks this is the issue uh, that he that got him to the White House, and he thinks this is the issue that will get him back there again. Uh, I fundamentally disagree. And if you look at the opinion polling, uh, they would suggest very strongly that immigration is not what got him there. Uh, and indeed, uh, that the majority of Americans are opposed to the wall uh, and that they're also that they place the blame squarely on his shoulders for precipitating this government shutdown. So I think you see somebody whose business instincts might be pretty good, but who in this instance, uh, unlike some of the things he said in his campaign in 2016, which were dead on, uh, politically speaking, uh, his politically his political instincts on this one, I think, are way off the mark. And I think we saw that to some extent uh, in the midterm elections, where towards the end, instead of, again, talking up a reasonably good economy, he kept reverting to the immigration issue. Ultimately, I don't think that really helped his party. That's Larry Donnelly, who was speaking to me before we came on air today. Larry is a law lecturer at NUI in Galway and a political columnist with the journal.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's talk about uh, the cover-up following uh, the death of uh, Shane O'Farrell, or at least uh, what Shane's family describes as a cover-up. Shane O'Farrell was a 23-year-old who was killed in a hit-and-run by a Lithuanian driver, Zygamantas Gridzuska, just outside of Carrick in August of 2011. There's many questions about why this man was on the streets what happened when he eventually handed himself in and was deported. Lucia, Shane's mother, told us on Tuesday's programme that the family want justice and truth, but that they've been denied justice because the truth about the malpractice and incompetence in dealing with the man who went on to kill Shane is too much for the government to countenance. This made for the front page of the Irish Examiner, or indeed new information related 
relating to the story made for the front page of the Irish Examiner yesterday and Michael Clifford writing inside the paper said that the government continues to resist any effort to excavate the full truth in the ensuing vacuum. Shane's mother, Lucia, has worked tirelessly to uncover facts. In this, she represents one individual with a shovel, while the state's fleet of mechanical diggers sit nearby, silent and unused. Michael Clifford is on the line and a a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. You talk about statements uh, that uh, this man, uh, Gridzuska, gave uh, to Gardaí while he was in custody, but uh, that the full statements weren't passed on to the coroner's court, apparently. That's right, Michael. Well, certainly on the record of the coroner's court, the statements that are there have certain redactions from the statements that were made by Mr. Uh, Grudzuska in Garda custody. Now, the significance of that is some elements of the story behind this man and how he made, how he, how it occurred that he was, as the family would have it, free to kill Shane O'Farrell on the 2nd of August 2011. Some of the circumstances behind that were therefore not available to the coroner's court. A passage was missing which referenced um, Mr. Grzuska's heroin abuse and his abuse of alcohol. Now, there may be an explanation for that, as I pointed out in the Mm. piece I wrote, and that possible explanation is that in the criminal proceedings against this man, which occurred two months before this, it is possible in that scenario that there are redactions made to statements following agreement between the prosecution and the defence. Notwithstanding that, if that is the explanation, that's only an if, Mm. if it is, that still does not um, alleviate the, 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 the error, or whatever it is, in relation to the coroner's court not having the full statements available to them in order to... And remember, a coroner's court is to decide how somebody died as opposed to the, the strict rules in a criminal court, which is to decide whether somebody specifically is guilty beyond a reasonable mm. doubt of a crime. So the coroner's court is more a fact-finding mission. And I think uh, the, 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 the most disturbing aspect to this is that irrespective of how it occurred or why it occurred, that this has only come to light eight years after Shane O'Farrell's death and has only come to light because of the persistence of his mother and his family in trying to access the truth. Okay, and a a redaction is where uh, you're looking at the statement, but part of it has been blackened out. Uh, And that in itself seems odd to me that in a a criminal prosecution uh, that uh, the prosecution and the defence may decide uh, to wipe out, if you like, part of a statement uh, that the defendant has given whilst in guard custody. But that's normal practice, is it? Yeah, well, it's a couple things with that. As you say, a redaction, normally something's blacked out. In this instance, there's just no... It, it, it's gone from the pay, from the sheet altogether. It's a right. series of questions mm-hmm. and answers that are not on the statements that were in the coroner's court, plus the fact that one of two statements wasn't in the, on the coroner's court record at all. Now, in a criminal trial, and this is only speculating to the extent that we don't know whether this is the explanation, but just for the sake of fullness, mm. in, case it's, in case anybody is, is saying that what's being presented is suggesting that it was deliberate, there is no evidence of that specifically, and there's a possible explanation, mm. no more than that. But, as you say, for example, in a criminal trial, if the prosecution and defence 
of a statement. And just to give you an obvious example, yeah. supposing there's something in a statement that references a third party in, uh, let's say, for example, a compromising position that has nothing to do with the person before the courts, then the defence and, and the prosecution could agree, well, look, we'll, 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 we'll redact that because there's no point in dragging somebody in needlessly who's nothing to do with this, etc. That type of thing. And it's possible, for example, in relation to the heroin use here, that mm. something may have been done there, but only a possibility. The point about it is the family are entitled to know why. And it's just one of a whole litany of instances mm. where there was, as you pointed out yourself, incompetence or whatever in relation to this case and the family still don't know the full story. And this may have been incompetence or a human error or an accident or whatever way you want to put it that the full statement wasn't passed on. What was passed on uh, was a, a question that was put uh, to this man, were you drinking alcohol last night? And he said no. Uh, but there was much more as you published in the paper yesterday. Yes, what was missing was the follow- following passage which was the question, sometimes you drink heavy. He replied, last six months, impossible as my financial situation is very bad. Any drugs? I have a problem with heroin. None yesterday. If you get your urine tested, would it show? What would it show? Uh, You can take the sample last time I take heroin last November. I am clear. No drink or drugs yesterday? No. And all of that was uh, missing. And, I mean, there are some things said in there, for example, that possibly could contradict with scenarios within a few months before that when Mr. Gridziewski was stopped by the Gardaí mm. in a car where drugs were found. He wasn't charged with it. It wasn't such that, it, it, that, there, was a, that there was a sufficient case that he could have been charged with it. But the whole issue of the heroin use as well, and that introduces the, the, the scenario whereby this man was an abuser of heroin and had I think it was three counts at least three he'd been done for at least three counts of possession of the drug previously which in turn brings forward once more the the the, the big issue for the O'Farrell family and that is that this man had a litany of convictions of broken bail conditions mm. and in one instance having not served a prison sentence at all for a conviction of heroin and so how come he was out and, and, and able to take um, control of, a, not proper control, quite obviously, mm. of a car on, on this fateful occasion. And we don't know the answer to that question, do we? Uh, he was found in possession of heroin, brought to court and sentenced to six months in prison and never served a day. But we don't know why, do we? We don't. And that's another question mm. that's simply not answered. And again, something else that only came to light through the persistence of the family. And the, the piece you referred to that I that I wrote there, Michael, mm. I mean, that illustrates that you have Lucia Farrell and her family trying to obtain records, trying to find out what happened when, in fact, the Dáil last June uh, voted through a motion that the nature of this was such that the very least it deserves a statutory inquiry when all of these issues could be obtained, all the records could be obtained. Somebody, for instance, like a senior counsellor, a judge, mm. could compile it could compel witnesses to give evidence and determine what exactly happened and why did it happen and is there any 
situation that anything that can be learned from it as well. Okay, let's talk about that uh, because uh, the majority of TDs voted in favour of uh, that Fianna Fáil motion to establish a commission of investigation. The government has said that's not possible because it's already the subject of a a GSOC investigation. Now, Lucio Farrell has spoken to us on uh, numerous, uh, a number of occasions recently uh, and pointed to an article that you wrote in respect of this because you're suggesting there's already precedent and that this has has happened and it is possible. Yes, I mean, in, in the case of Morris McCabe, for instance, um, a commission of investigation was ordered into cases that um, he had highlighted where he said there was malpractice or incompetence in, um, in the Cavan Monaghan division. Now, at the time that happened, in relation to one of those cases, there was still outstanding a, a disciplinary action in relation to one of the Gardaí. And that nobody suggested that that alone could be something that could stop this commission going ahead. If, for example, there was a criminal charge outstanding, that may well be a different issue. But in this case, there is not a criminal charge because last May, GSOC uh, finished its investigation, that phase of its investigation, and determined that nobody, there was no case to be brought of a criminal charge against any of the Gardaí. So that issue does not arise. And it would appear, it certainly appears certainly, that this is merely a delaying tactic that the government do not want to investigate it. Now, one possible explanation there is that it is not just the Gardaí that are um, not in the dock, but under the microscope, excuse me, in this instance, but elements of the criminal justice system. And I think it's fairly well known that in many situations like this, the Department of Justice are very reluctant to have these things examined and one has to wonder where is that where the pressure is coming from to back off and hope that this goes away but it's completely contrary to the will of the people mm. as expressed in the doll well, unlike the mechanical diggers uh, that the government has, as you put it in the examiner yesterday, Lucia has her shovel and she continues to dig. She's a, a remarkable woman. And as I, I said to her uh, on the programme the other day, uh, I, I know she'll not forget Shane, uh, but it's equally true to say that she'll not allow anybody else uh, to forget him either, that uh, there, she'll continue with uh, this campaign to get justice uh, and you look at what happens politically in the doll, and you wonder what the point is in a lot of uh, these motions uh, if there's no action following on it's one thing whether that's to do with overgrounding electricity cables or recognising the state of Palestine but uh, this is somewhat different in that uh, it's a human life uh, and the family are looking for justice, they believe there's a, a cover up and interestingly uh, you've been reporting in the Irish Examiner that this was the subject of uh, the recent negotiations uh, for extending the confidence and supply agreement? As I understand it, the, the issue was brought up, as, as you know, the, the, that um, agreement was extended and it was the subject of negotiations. As I understand it, it was one of the issues that was raised with the Fine Gael, the ruling party effectively by Fianna Fáil. Now, what I'm unclear of is how strong that was raised, whether it was a question of, you know, um, for example, colloquially what do you want and well we'd like some action on housing etc we want a public inquiry on Shane O'Farrell's death but I don't know whether that was pushed to any extent whatsoever and my understanding having spoken to people who would have been close to those negotiations is that it, it remained somewhat unresolved which would suggest to me that perhaps it was not raised by Fianna Fáil in a very robust manner 
But the, the other thing there, Michael, is, uh, mm. as you mentioned, Lucia Farrell uh, is a remarkable woman and, and, and also uh, um, a bereaved mother. But apart from that, and that is exactly, as you said, the human side of the story, there's a wider issue, and that is she is also a citizen, as are her family. And beyond the family, citizens are entitled to know whether the system works. And if it does not work, and the criminal justice system is vital to the functioning in any democracy, and if it does not work, what went wrong? Mm. And we have, a, we have a tradition in this country of when things go wrong, shoving it off to the side. And inevitably what happens, and history has shown this repeatedly, is that the same things happen over and over again. And unless these matters are dealt with in a proper way by the state, it is inevitable that the same type of failings that um, occurred in this situation are going to recur again. Mm. And the sentence, I think it was eight months, uh, that was handed down to this man uh, was for leaving the scene of an accident, uh, but he was also given the option then of being deported. He went back to Lithuania rather than go to jail. Uh, And as Lucia says, that's the last we know of him. Nobody knows where he is now or if he's driving elsewhere or what the situation is. Precisely, and and, and that's the way... It has, um, that's the way it, it, it has developed, and um, the, the litany of um, instances prior to that, where he was before the courts, where he was convicted, where judges um, gave down some very stringent bail conditions, where in one instance, a judge in the circuit court said, if this man is arrested for a crime, he was giving him a chance effectively, mm. And even he was unaware of, of, of some of the previous instances in the 12 months preceding that. He was giving him a chance. He said, if this man is arrested again, he was arrested a number of times after that. And he was never brought back because this judge said if he comes back on that basis, he'd be going to jail. He, was, he wasn't brought back. Mm. And all of this, you know, it deserves a proper investigation. That's it. And that information wasn't passed on. Next time he was in court in RD, uh, which uh, obviously uh, meant uh, that, uh, again, he escaped uh, what people would consider to be justice. Uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about this uh, in the coming weeks, months and possibly years if need be because as uh, we said Lucia isn't going to let it lie uh, and we'll leave it there for the moment though Michael and thank you though for joining us as always Thank you indeed Michael Clifford is Special Correspondent for the Irish Examiner Michael Reed on LMFM now, we said we'd make more time for comments because we've been receiving so many comments, not just today, but over the course of uh, the last few days. And uh, true to our word, Marie is back with us. What have you got for us, Marie? I am, Michael. And believe it or not, most of the comments I have here are in relation to the name change of Our Lady of Lords Hospital, such as, I suppose, the, the it obviously has struck home with a lot of people. And Mary from Delique is one of those people. She phoned mm. in actually today. And she says, I've been listening on and off, Michael, uh, to your show, uh, discussing the name of the hospital. And you hear both the pro, uh, you know, people for and against it. But she says, I worked there years ago in the 60s in the nuns time. Mm. And there was a different name on the hospital for a while. It It was called the International Missionary Training Hospital. And that's the way the girls answered the phone. That's how people who rang, you know, were answered the International Missionary Training Hospital. That was in the late 60s. She says the nuns were going out on the missions. And at that time, a lot of girls were coming over from abroad to be trained as nurses. She didn't particularly have a strong opinion one way or another in relation to the name change, but says that it's the expense of it that will probably concern her. Mm. 
you know, but the reason she was ringing in was just in the context of the talk about the, the change to remember that there was a name before that, yeah, before well, Lady of Lords. Th- th- thanks for bringing that to her attention. Uh, and she is right, of course. It, it was opened in 1957 as uh, the International Missionary Training Hospital. Uh, and uh, I've been looking since uh, the call uh, to try and find out uh, some more information as to when it changed to Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. Many thanks uh, for bringing that to her attention. Uh, I have to say, I wasn't aware of it before your call, uh, but that is uh, the case. We know that uh, the Northeastern Health Board took over the hospital in 1997. Uh, wouldn't have thought that it, it would have remained as the International Missionary Training Hospital through the 70s, given how people are talking about it and how they always remember yes. Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital and so on. Uh, but uh, if she was working there in the 70s and it had that same name, uh, it would be yeah. interesting to know when yeah, it changed. Yeah, she, she worked in the 60s and she said she 60s, actually, was it, sorry. In the 60s, yeah, yeah. but she left in the 70s. Oh, right, yeah. But yeah. she can't actually remember if it had changed you know, when mm. at the time that she left, she can't remember. Yeah. Uh, but just wanted to mention too, is I know from myself, Michael, I was born in 1966. Now, I wasn't born in the, the Lords. I was born in the cottage. But growing up myself, I I remembered as Our Lady of Lords. But funnily enough, when she mentioned International Missionary Training Hospital, it rang a bell with me. Mm. Isn't it funny? It wasn't just, I thought, God, I do have a recollection of that somewhere. Mm. Well, it's one of the theories about symphysiotomy and that it carried on in the hospital for as long as it did because uh, the missionaries would be in Africa where you wouldn't have uh, the same type of medical settings and uh, the uh, opportunity uh, to deliver babies uh, through C-section and that sort of thing and that uh, symphysiotomy would be the only option option uh, so that they would train people to carry out some physiotomies yes. for that reason so that they could be carried out on people in Africa. Yes. Uh, and that comes back to that religious ethos and uh, the concerns that people had about the medical missionaries and how they were running the hospital. Well, funny you should mention some physiotomies because Val Andrade also got in touch and he says, my mother, like hundreds of others, had a physiotomy done in the Coombe Hospital mm. in Dublin. Yeah. They did not change the name of that hospital or other hospitals. And he also mentioned that hospitals like the Bowman have taken out cribs at Christmas and they cribs were there for years and it was something the patients wanted and he feels they were removed because of PC politics. Okay. He says that people coming from abroad come to work in the teaching hospital for years and mm. have had no problems with what was there before and he feels that a name of changing the name of the hospital would be a waste of money. All right. Well, I mean, symphysiotomy was uh, a practice uh, that was commonplace in uh, this country for many years, as indeed it was all over the world. And quite often it was the right course of action. And this is something that people forget. Uh, There were a a number of uh, things that uh, play into all of uh, this. uh, And I think the main thing is that it continued as long long as it did in Our Lady of Lourdes in Drogheda when it was widely regarded to, to be a, a, a practice that shouldn't be followed and that things like cesarean section were possible. Instead, uh, if you look at uh, the 40s and the 50s uh, and uh, the report about the tea and bread diet that people were on in uh, Dublin and they were so malnourished that some physiotomies were uh, necessary, uh, well, that's one thing. But when you think about perfectly healthy women going into hospital to have their babies and coming out crippled, in pain, depressed and so on, it's a different thing. 
Okay, I've a very strongly worded letter here from Eugene. I don't think I'm going to get to read it all out. Okay. So maybe we'll save that one for tomorrow, Michael. All right, I'll, okay. I'll, yeah. I'll have time for one, maybe one, one more, shorter yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, Sheila from Dundalk says, The name of Our Lady, the reason that people want to stop using it, why it's so hurtful, is because of what she terms as abortions and the murder of innocent that's going to take place in the hospital. She doesn't think Our Lady would want to be associated with the hospital without okay. going on. Alright, thanks for that Marie. Uh, we'll come back to Eugene's uh, email tomorrow as you say and some more of those comments. That's our programme for today though and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.